There are just a couple things before we open our hearts to the Word of God that I want to share with all of you. First thing I want to do is wish our moms and our grandmoms and our great-grandmoms. Do I have to go any beyond that? (laughs) Just making sure. Happy Mother's Day. I know how thankful I am for my mother and Evie's mother and Evie and the work that they've done, uh, creativity. I know my mom would always say, she says, well, I had three boys plus your dad, so that's four boys. And it takes a lot of creativity to raise four boys. I'm not sure she thinks we're raised yet, so the sacrifice, the love. I also know that we live, you know, we talk about the theological viewpoint of the already and not yet, and what that means is in every part of life there's both joy and there's pain. So I want to, with sensitivity, also remember those who've lost their moms or those who maybe wish they could be mothers or those who... You know, we have aunts, we, have, we do mothering in a whole lot of ways, through mentoring and through sacrifice and through gifting and through creativity and the way we love. We embody in that way the character of God, which has both fatherly and motherly characteristics and qualities. And so I pray no matter who you are, where God and his providence and his sovereignty has you, that you find here a place of grace a place where God's healing and God's love and God's joy and God's presence can rain down on you. And that being said, this is my last sermon uh, before I will be taking a a three-and-a-half-month sabbatical. And so I appreciate Andrew's prayers for me and the elders' prayers. We, I think we leave you in pretty good shape. I certainly feel very comfortable with the elders who love you and love the church, with Andrew, who does a tremendous, tremendous job proclaiming and heralding the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think you're going to have a wonderful summer. Uh, continue to pray for Evie and myself. Pray, you know, I'm embarking on this. This is not a vacation. This is a time where, Lord willing, I can get... What we want to pray is I don't have writer's block. This would not be the good time. You know, I'm not sure about fleeces and stuff like that, but it's like, okay, God, I've given you four months now that we have to get this done. If it's not done, it just doesn't get done. So no writer's block during this time as I try to tackle getting as much as I can done on this dissertation that feels like I've been working decades on. So we'll see how I do in terms of that. Pray also for yourselves. Pray for the congregation. This is a time for all of us to have a renewal of vision and renewal of heart and renewal of purpose. And even the times sabbatical comes from the word Sabbath. Sabbath doesn't mean stop activity. It means stop some of your normal activity for the purpose of meeting God, seeing God, and resting in a kind of a new way to be more prepared for the purposes of God. I know I'm praying for God to really show himself to me during these months, and I'm praying for God to show himself to you all during these months so we come back with renewed vigor, renewed vitality, renewed vision, and renewed purpose for what God has for us here. In the book of Acts, it talks about how David was commended by the Lord because he served God's purpose in his generation. That's part of what we're to do. We're here to serve the purpose of God in this time, in this place, as we are the people of God. So that's my prayer, and I encourage all of us to be praying during this time. And then I will be back in the office, if you're marking calendars, Tuesday, September 6th, which is the day after Labor Day, and then Sunday, September 11th. We're, we're preaching on something out of this book. I can, tell you, I, I can tell you it won't be a different book. It'll be this book. I can't tell you exactly what at this point. 
What we're doing this morning is concluding this series that we've been doing in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. So if you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, we'll take a look at this text. Proverbs chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman, folly, is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there that our guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise that your word does not return to you void. So you have sent it out to accomplish through the ministry, the role of the Holy Spirit, illumining, teaching, counseling, leading our hearts, mediating the very presence of Jesus Christ, bringing us into a deeper understanding of our union with him for that which you have grabbed hold of us. So open the eyes of our heart. Show us ourselves that we may see Christ, his grace, his mercy, his purpose for us. Teach us by your spirit. May you be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, we're concluding this morning this series of sermons on the book of Proverbs, the study of wisdom, practical wisdom for daily living, what we call the path to human flourishing. And I want to remind us how we said we're to read the book of Proverbs. We are to read it in what I've called a descriptive, not prescriptive way. And here's what I mean by that. One of the dangers we can get if we read it in what I call a prescriptive way is if we read it as a formula. By formula, I mean if you do this, think about this, if you train up a child in the way he should go, he will not depart from it. Prescript will mean, if I did A, B will happen. What do you do when B happens sometimes? What do you do when it doesn't go the way you planned? What do you do when you look at life and you went, oh, wait a second. I followed these rules. I did these things. I tried to do all this, and it didn't work out. That usually leads to one of two things in our heart. The dynamics of our heart, either we're going to get angry at God... God, I've done everything for you. You're not coming through for me. Or it may be self-contempt. We get angry for ourselves. I've done everything I can. I can't blame God. That's off limits. Where did I go wrong? Where did I fail? Either one of those things through that formulaic, I call it the algebra equation form of Christianity, and it's not Christianity at all. 
okay? But Christianity as algebra doesn't work. Instead, Solomon, in the person of this sage, this father figure, this wise counselor, is given a descriptive. In other words, he's describing the path of wisdom and the path of human flourishing. He's not saying if you do this, this will automatically be how your circumstances, but he's saying here's the life of the kingdom. Here's what it means. Here's the worldview of belonging to the covenant God. Here's what it looks like to live in relationship with God. And the path to wisdom is the only path. He's setting out two paths. The path of wisdom is the only path to human flourishing, even when you suffer. It's still human flourishing. The path of folly will always lead to self-destruction. And he has spent these nine chapters motivating, basically telling. He is saying, he's challenging. Here's a sage, a counselor, a father figure. Basically, picture him sitting at, kitchen, at the kitchen table with his sons. And he's describing for them the life of the kingdom, challenging them to choose life, almost like we're recalling back to the book of Joshua, if he could be recalling back to the covenant as they were entering into the promised land. And when Joshua said, you know, choose this day whom you will serve for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you get to the end of chapter 9, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's calling for a commitment. He spent these nine chapters extolling the glories of wisdom, the foolishness of folly, these two paths, and now he's basically saying, here we go, sons, because chapter 10 will begin the specific Proverbs. That's why I decided to stop the series right here. I'm motivating you. I hope. I hope actually the Spirit of God is motivating you. But it's calling for commitment. The sage, the counselor, is sitting down with his sons and saying, sitting on the fence is not an option. Neutrality is not an option. You must decide. You must make a commitment. Remember, he's, this is not a commitment to get into the family. This is not like choosing salvation, which you can't do. He's talking to his sons. They're in the family, and he's encouraging them to flourishing, to maturity. And he's saying, are you go going to live for wisdom, or are you going to continue to live for folly? Which path will you take? I'll tell you a quick story. I remember when Evie and I went to our denomination, M&A, Mission to North America, their assessment center for church planting. And in the course of the week, you had to go through all sorts of exercises. You had to preach. You had to do some counseling. You had to share your vision for a new church startup, a new church plant. One of the exercises was in evangelism. You had to share the gospel. It's always great to do this in this lovely setting, very, you know, authentic, where you're doing it with 10 guys watching you. You guys want to breathe over me a little bit more? I'm enjoying this. Kind of a nice setting, nice context. And I remember getting finished, and yes, we passed, so I can share this story. I like this. We passed. But they gave feedback at the end, and part of the feedback I received that was that I was weak at closing the deal. <laughs> I went, okay. I appreciate that feedback. I, you know, it was interesting the way he worded it. I thought to myself, I've never thought of evangelism as closing the deal, but I actually agree with his assessment. I wasn't gifted at calling for commitment. I was a teacher. I could lay out all these things. My weak point was basically saying, you must decide. And he was right in giving that. I appreciated his feedback. The sage here is not weak at closing the deal. The father figure, the counselor, is not weak at challenging, calling, 
And I want to, I hope I've grown in the 16 years since I went to Assessment Center. I want to try to close the deal this morning as best as I can as the instrument of God's spirit in heralding his word. I want to call you to commitment to a life of wisdom, a life of, what did we say earlier on? Healthy in God, robust in love. That's a good description of wisdom and human flourishing. Where we're thinking, because commitment is not perfection. Commitment is not sinlessness. Commitment is commitment to the path of maturity under the lordship and kingship of the covenant God. It's a commitment to saying, I want to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God through Jesus Christ to be healthy in God. My relationship with God, my relationship with others, my relationship with myself, and my relationship with the world, and robust in love. And the sage, in calling to this commitment, calls us to consider, and you're going to think, he doesn't want to go on sabbatical. He's preaching an extra long sermon. Yes, four points. <laughs> A four-point sermon. I don't give those too often. But the sage is calling you to consider four things to challenge you to commitment. He wants you to consider the completeness of wisdom, the contempt of the scoffer, the cunning of folly, and the cost of the gospel. The completeness of wisdom, the contempt of the scoffer, the cunning of folly, and the cost of the gospel. This passage is divided very simply, three units of six verses east. Verses one through six talk about the completeness of wisdom. It says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Now take a look at this. Ray Ortland says in his commentary, he says, wisdom is and has been personified throughout as a classy lady, opening to us her palatial home. But he says, what is the sage talking about in real terms? Taking the whole Bible into account, this is a picture of Jesus Christ as a wealthy and wise friend who has thought of everything we need and provided it in full. The word used for wisdom here in verse 1 is singular in English, but it's plural in the Hebrew. Wisdoms, not a numerical plural, it isn't alternative wisdoms to choose from. It's a plural of majesty, a plural of fullness, a plural of completion. In other words, it is wisdom in all its perfections and fullness. It is Jesus Christ who Paul said to the Colossians, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 1 says that wisdom has hewn her seven pillars. Now, let's be honest, there were not a lot of homes like this in the ancient Near East. It wasn't come to my large palatial home and find. They lived in villages. They lived in... So wisdom here is throwing out all the stops. If you take a look at this, verse 2, she has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. Wisdom is providing the best. This is not come to McDonald's and have a French fry. This is come and get, you want the richest of lobster tail. This is not, and no offense if you drink boxed wine, I said this in first service, but this is the greatest of whatever the best wine could be. Mixed wine filled with spices. Do you know what Jesus Christ is doing here? He is lavishing himself upon his children. 
Andrew rightly prayed. We experience every blessing we experience in the Christian life because we are united to Jesus Christ. And if in Jesus Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we're united to that. That means by virtue of that union with Christ, all the treasures, the lavish, the perfection, the completeness, the majesty of wisdom lives within us. Jesus Christ lacks nothing we need. The choir sang it well. Your grace is enough. The question is, do we trust it? And do we appropriate it? Do we read our Bible for information, or do we read it for formation? Do we come to the church because we want to learn? Oh, I got a good fact. The Hebrew in there was, oh, plural. I like that fun factoid. I can do that. Or do we read because we go, Lord, help my heart, my mind, my soul, my being fall in love with your majesty. And you're creating in me to be a lover. That the entirety of my being is surrendered to your wisdom and will. This is what he's describing here. Wisdom knows what is best for us. Do you trust her? Are you seeking to have your life conformed and molded and sculpted? To her? Or do you follow your own heart? See, that's what our culture tells us to do. So remember the contrast, wisdom and folly. It'd be one thing if it's wisdom versus evil. That's not the contrast, though, that's being made here. It's wisdom versus folly. And folly is foolishness. Evil, we see, and there's plenty of evil in the world, but that's not what the text is talking about. The text is talking about folly. And folly, think about our popular culture and how seductive folly is. Consider these words to the popular song from the movie Cinderella. And I'm not telling you not to like Disney. I still love Disney. But I am telling you, be aware of the subtle, seductive, soothing nature of some of the messages that are in there. Listen to this. In one of the songs, and I don't know which one, I actually had Evie being my research assistant for me, and she came up with this for me. This is great. It says, who's to say the rules must stay the same forevermore? This is the words to the song that your children and grandchildren are listening to. Whoever made them had to change the rules that came before. So make your own way. Show the beauty within. When you follow your heart, There's no heart you can't win. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own heart or folly. When you follow your own heart, there's no heart you can't win. You must make your own way. Which path will you choose? Or Princess Diana. We all love Princess Diana. I'm not saying we shouldn't. She was reported to say, only do what your heart tells you. The sage is getting his sons to reckon he's sharing with them the worldview of the covenant God and the worldview of Israel. Judges chapter 21, verse 24, summed up folly very well when it said, in those days Israel had no king. You'd think Israel had no king. You'd think in the next line, it was anarchy. Everyone went nuts. It was violence in the streets, sex, drugs, and rock and roll everywhere. It's not what it says. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
you want to know there's almost no greater enemy than you doing what makes sense to you. Be suspicious of your practicality. Be suspicious of what you call common sense. Be suspicious of your own heart. Don't follow the way of your heart. Verse 3 we read, how does this message get out? Remember, the completeness of wisdom. She, wisdom, has sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Remember I said that wisdom is really Christ himself. Christ is the incarnation. Wisdom in the flesh. So Christ is calling. How does Christ call? First, it says, from the highest places in the town. Wisdom does not call. It's Wisdom is that city on a hill. Doesn't hide itself under a bushel and say, I'm calling out to you. Wisdom is bold and public. Out there, calling out. Wisdom sends out its messengers saying, will you follow? Church, are you bold and public in your faith? Or do you hide your light under a bushel? Are you bold and public in your faith? As the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for I am convinced that the gospel is the power of God. And do you recognize that in the New Testament, this is still how God works today? Here in the Old Testament, wisdom sends out its messengers. In the New Testament, Jesus sends out his messengers. Do you know what Jesus calls them? Ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. Look at what it says is true of you. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We like that part, but the text doesn't stop there. See, we like, I'm reconciled to God. Now I sit back and wait to go to heaven, right? Uh Uh-uh. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And how did he, how was he doing that? By entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do you hear the dignity you have? The living God is reconciling his elect to himself. How? By entrusting to you, putting in your hands, saying, I'm entrusting my important, my valuable, the only message that will save the world, and I'm putting it into the hands of the church, making my appeal through you. We could question the wisdom of God, but he's got no plan B. He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Wisdom is calling out on the streets, bold and public, through her ambassadors. Now, what is an ambassador? Think about ambassadors for a minute. Tim Keller gives the following thoughts on what it means to be an ambassador. He says, first of all, an ambassador represents his home country to another country. So his citizenship, his identity, his belonging are all with that home country. We're ambassadors on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong, our identity, our value, our worth is all there, but we represent heaven to earth. We bring and embody heaven to earth. 
Dr. Keller makes the point, he says, so in order to do that, you need to be bilingual. You need to speak at least two languages, the language of heaven, you need to know the word of God, but you're speaking that to earth, and you're speaking that very specifically to all the cultures of the earth. He says, think about an ambassador. If you're an ambassador of the United States to France, you not only know the values, the message, you're representing that, but you need to speak French. You need to know the language of French. You need to speak that language. You need to know that culture. Your job, your responsibility, your effectiveness depends on your ability to translate the message in a way that they can understand. How well do you know your kids' and your grandkids' culture? Your job is to translate the unchanging message of the gospel into their language. How well do you know the message language, the culture of 21st century Florida, United States, where we live. You need to be a student of the Word of God. You need to be a student of the culture. Your job as an ambassador is never to compromise the values, but to be able to communicate those values. It's not enough to just vomit the Word of God. If I go to France and vomit the Word of God in English... Someone who speaks French won't understand it. You have to know how to translate the message into its language. Are you bilingual in order to give accurately the message? Wisdom is complete, and in God's wisdom, he's communicating it from the rooftops through his messengers, his ambassadors. Call to commitment. Are you committed to wisdom? Are you committed to being an ambassador? Second, second thing to consider. Consider the contempt of the scoffer. Verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you, which means, practically speaking, before you confront somebody, you should be looking at their life and going, are they a wise man or are they a scoffer? So we need to understand what a scoffer is. Because if you reprove a wise man, the text says, he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he's going to still be wiser. Teach a wise man, a righteous man, he's only going to increase. But if you correct a scoffer, you get abuse. Verse 8 says, a scoffer will have you. They look to get you, to possess you. So we need to ask, what is a scoffer? Ray Ortland says that a scoffer is anyone who never accepts correction. He thinks other people really need his opinions. He's easily offended. He's above other people. And if someone seems to threaten his superiority, he scoffs, he mocks, he gets angry, he mounts off, he denigrates, he blame shifts. In other words, he is so busy defending himself, validating, proving himself that he can't hear what the other person is saying, speaking into their lives. Instead, he scoffs. This kind of person is dangerous, obvious to himself, because he allows no one to speak into his life. But he's obviously also dangerous to the community. The defensive person, the scoffer, is always saying it's the other person's fault. And let's face it, friends, we're all, we all have a hidden scoffer inside. Because the way this comes out is, how receptive are you to somebody speaking into your life? How receptive are you to somebody criticizing you? 
Now, I know nobody comes to church and says, oh, I've prayed, I'm prepared to go to church, I'm going to worship today. Lord, I pray 10 people will criticize me. That would be an encouraging day. I'm excited for worship. Bring it on. So we all kind of inside, you know, oh, that hurt. But the question is, when you're a scoffer, even if the other person, maybe their motives aren't pure. Maybe they're, you know, but even if they're 99% wrong and 1% right, are you listening to the 1% and going, remember this is the call to commitment to the path to flourishing and health. Are you listening and going, God, how do you want to use this to make me? You want me, Paul said in Ephesians 4, to grow into the full stature, maturity of the fullness of Christ. That's your vision for me. And the means, the path, the antidote, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why the fear of the Lord? How does the fear of the Lord help us with this battle of defensiveness? Because the fear of the Lord lets us know that his eyes are the only eyes that matter. His approval is the only approval that ultimately matters. Yes, criticism from others will hurt, but it doesn't destroy. It's painful, but it doesn't devastate. It hurts, it's going to sting, but we can go, wait a second, if I'm worshiping in awe, revering, I'm going, Lord, I have your approval. I have your blessing. I have your favor because you look at me through Jesus Christ. I'm validated, I'm vindicated. So I don't need to be a scoffer showing off my opinions before others. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to judge myself. I don't even need to evaluate myself. My evaluation is complete in Jesus Christ, who I'm united to. Consider the contempt of the scoffer. Next, look at the cunning of the folly. Verse 13, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest place of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Ray Ortland again makes a great point here. He says, this is a picture of our world today. He writes, in the revelation of John, our two great enemies are the beast and the prostitute. He says, the beast is there to savage us, overwhelm us, the prostitute to seduce us. And he says, here in the West, our primary threat is the prostitute. For the prostitute is soft, seducing, soothing, but just as destructive as the beast. And he writes, this is not always to see. He says, look at some of the contrasts between verses 13 to 18, folly, with verses 6, 1 to 6, and the completeness of wisdom. He says, the message is the same. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Verse 4 and verse 16. Same. I'm inviting. I'm welcoming. Come on in. But he says there is difference. First, wisdom builds her house. Folly just sits there and expects us to be impressed. Second, wisdom offers us meat and fine wine. Folly offers us bread and water. It says third, wisdom is dealing honestly with us, straightforward. Come and hear you who are naive and immature and live. Folly is making glamorous promises that cannot satisfy. Folly is cunning. 
That's why I asked you, be aware. I'm not being legalistic and saying stay away from all these things, but be aware of the messages that are given in the world around us through music, through song, through Facebook, through television, through movies, through I'll even pick on my own love, through sports. There are messages that are being given to convince us to love the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the world, not the kingdom of God. Folly is indirect and cunning. Do you notice, are you considering the cunning of folly? And how do we finally go about doing it? What is the solution? Lastly, consider. And I pray that this is the one you consider the most. I pray that this is the one you consider the most deeply. The cost of the gospel. Ray Ortland quotes a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to this. Spurgeon writes, The gate of mercy is opened. And over the door it is written, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Spurgeon writes, Between that word save and the next word sinners, there's no adjective. It does not say penitent sinners, nor awakened sinners, nor sensible sinners, nor grieving sinners, nor alarmed sinners. No, it only says sinners. And he says, and I know this, that when I come, I come to Christ today. I dare not come as a conscience sinner or an awakened sinner, but I have to come simply as a sinner with nothing in my hands. The cost of the gospel, especially from the perspective of the New Testament, is seen in verse 4 and 5 when it says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come Eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Trumper Longman writes, he says, specifically in this verse, in these verses, wisdom here is addressing the simple-minded, who are also called those who lack heart or those who lack sense. The reference is neither to the wise nor to the foolish, but to the naive or immature. These are people who are not yet committed to either side of the polarity between wisdom and folly. Remember, this is the call. Chapter 9 is all about the call to decision, the call to commitment. So Longman is rightly making the point these are people who are not yet committed to either side, and so it's the goal of the one named wisdom to turn them to her side. She wants to instruct them in wisdom. She thus invites them to come to her home and share a meal with her. And Longman says, in the ancient Near East, for a woman to invite a man to a meal has erotic overturns. What woman and what woman wisdom wants is an intimate relationship with the man. Scandalous, right? You better believe it. And you better believe that the gospel is scandalous. Do you recognize that Jesus does not want to dump information into your brain. He wants to capture your entire being and be united to you in intimate love. Which is why the imagery that's given, come eat of my bread and drink of my choicest, my mixed, my finest wine, is fulfilled when Jesus says in John chapter 6 that Vic read, I am the living bread, Jesus says that came down from heaven. 
so that one may eat of it and not die. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Wisdom is inviting us, come, come and share an intimate meal with me. Come and share an intimate relationship with me. That meal that is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where Jesus, for broken, despairing, corrupt sinners, gave his body, gave his blood, gave his life, so that he was the bread that was broken, so that through his brokenness, you and I might be made whole. That whoever partakes, listen to the promise. Jesus says, my flesh is true food. Wisdom is calling out, come on in, you simple-minded, you naive. Come, inviting, welcoming. Don't worry about your former life. Don't worry about your guilt. Don't worry about all that baggage. Come and eat. Jesus fulfilled us. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And whoever, by faith, which is what we're going to do in the Lord's Supper, the gospel spoken, the gospel reenacted. Union with Jesus Christ is about to be reenacted when we come and partake of the supper. You're partaking of actual union with Jesus so that his life becomes yours. Peter worded, you become a partaker of the divine nature, and it's free to you and I, and it cost Jesus everything. Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts. The only requirement is the thirst, to be thirsty. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I think the thing that you could do that's most offensive to God is, is probably not what you're considering your sin. But it's if you try to earn the Lord's favor and the Lord's blessing and the Lord's approval, if you try to earn validation and prove yourself and significance and worth and all of these things, if you try to buy it with your resources rather than accept it for free. It cost the living God of the universe everything so that he could be united to you. The only way to live is the path of wisdom, and wisdom is Jesus Christ. Will you come to him and live? Father, thank you so much that you give us your word and that you give us the sacrament now to feed us with strength, with mercy, with grace, that we may partake and be united to you by faith, to possess Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. May we do this now. May your spirit be at work making real to us Jesus Christ, mediating his presence. In Jesus' name, amen.